the Bruce Boudreaux bump goes international. The Canucks win their sixth game in a row under their new coach. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who does fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, Drancer, this might be a little bit of an odd show because, as a lot of our listeners will be aware, there is a rapidly developing COVID-19 situation in the NHL, in the wider world of sports, in wider society. And we're not going to ignore that. We will touch on it specifically as it relates to the Canucks and the NHL throughout the course of the show But I don't know about you, but for me, while we do have fresh hockey games to talk about, I'd like to talk about that game last night because, you know what, Uh, it wasn't a Picasso, it was not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but the Canucks found a way, they pull away late in the third period, they beat the Sharks 5-2, just like that, six-game winning streak, still undefeated under Bruce Boudreaux, and the good vibes, at least as far as hockey is concerned, continue for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, head in the sand. <laughs> Look, no, I, I'm with you, though. The <laughs> Look, this, we, we don't know you how know, many more I'm games we're going to have to talk about, Drancer. I know, I know. Well, let, and, the, and this show could quickly get overrun with news. Yep. I mean, that is what it is. It is. And we are hour by hour again for the last 12 months or what have you as a – you know, dark year sort of looks like it may close out with with more uncertainty in the sports world. The Canucks, though, are enthralling, exciting, phenomenal. I thought they played really well. Yeah. Like, I, I, there was that moment, obviously, in the second period where they were getting outshot two to one, and it was like, how can they keep doing this? And then Brock Besser scores an absolute no doubter on Aiden Hill, and it's three one. The Canucks led for most of that game, like they led. They were in the lead. They were in control. And the Sharks pressed, and the Sharks never looked nearly as threatening as the Canucks. It felt like if the Sharks were going to make it close again, the Canucks would quickly restore the lead, and that's, in fact, how it played out. Now, the Thatcher-Demko stop on Logan Couture was maybe a little too close for comfort, or a lot, Yep, or a lot, but, you know, that, to me, looked like a Canucks team in control. And one thing that I'm beginning to enjoy about this or that I'm beginning to take real or put real stock in let's put it that way is the Canucks have now won six in a row and in wins five and six on that win streak the bounces were against them their PDO actually went down in terms of their save percentage and their on ice shooting percentage in those games and to me that starts to be a really good sign when you look at this win streak in isolation when you look at the six game stretch in isolation the Canucks are generating an awful lot more under Boudreaux than they did before. And they're surrendering more, too. But I think you have to be comfortable with that when you've got the offensive talent and the horses up front that the Canucks do and the goaltender that they've got in the back end. If you open it up a little bit the way that Boudreaux has, you trust that your greater skill level and efficiency will outshoot theirs, especially since their skill guys are shooting on Thatcher Demko. Yeah. And that logic has held. It seems to fit the personnel they have at hand a lot more. Way better. Because, yeah, get the most value out of Thatcher Demko. You have a goalie capable 
of, with some frequency, making those types of saves against Logan Couture late to save you the game. You have a guy like Brock Besser who, you know, all of a sudden looks like the Brock Besser of old who's capable of just picking his spot whenever he gets a little bit of time in close. Well, if, he had a lot of time in yeah, close. Oh, man. That second <laughs> one, he had all the time he checked in his the watch, world. made a ham sandwich. It was, <laughs> he, had, he, had, he had leisure time to pick that corner, but pick yeah, that corner, not, he did. Not tight defending from the San Jose Sharks no. on that one. And you know what? As you say, maybe they're giving up a little bit more, but even in that game last night when they were being kind of – I won't even say hemmed in their own zone because a lot of it yeah. was more about the Canucks having trouble getting things going the other way. But it, it kind of the Sharks had a kind of similar thing going to what the Canucks did a lot earlier in the season, where yeah, you're getting shots, you're controlling more of the puck, but how many grade A scoring chances are you racking up in that second period? Right, like the Sharks did not look like a particularly threatening, dangerous offensive team in that no. game. No, I mean, other than that one line. And, that, and you know, I felt like that sort of played out as we expected, right? That one line with heavy skill pressed the Canucks. Jasper Weatherby had a couple of, uh, of glorious chances to increase his net worth. And aside from that, you know, the Sharks were kind of – I thought I thought they controlled play better than the Canucks, but you know what? They looked like the early season Canucks. That's exactly where it's like, right. It's like they they took the moral victory, but they were never really in it. No, sure, you had the puck a lot, but you're a lot of shots from the outside, a lot of non-threatening opportunities. Yeah, for for the Canucks, it was like, oh, she was on the other foot. Let's go. And and you know, I thought it felt a little bit like the 2019-20 textbook for the Canucks, right? The, the, this team's gone back to testing teams vertically, trusting that their greater skill and efficiency will will count, which makes sense when you've got a team with this many quality finishers, and trusting the goaltender to clean up some of what the defense is going to surrender because the defense is not going to be the calling card of this team. And it's like they tried to make it that the calling card of this team in the offseason, and none of it worked. Like, the, the style of play they started playing didn't work. It was too conservative. The signings, you know, one thing about Pullman and Hamannick signings is they've left the lineup now. And have we noticed? Like, shouldn't you notice? You know, I, I mean, Noah Juleson, yeah, Noah it, Juleson struggled. Yeah. But, but I, or at least he struggled on the Cogliano goal. But I don't know that they're worse for wear with Juleson or Shen or Burroughs than they are with Pullman or Hamannick on their right side. So I, I definitely noticed it with Juleson last night. And I think to the extent that they aren't worse for wear right now, it's less about what, you know, Juleson and Burroughs are doing and more about what the big three are doing, right? Quinn Hughes, Tyler Myers, and OEL. OEL, I don't think his strongest performance last night, but I thought another really good game for Myers and another really good game. It was another for really Hughes good game. Well. I mean, with Quinn Hughes on the ice, the Canucks outshot their opponents by uh, eight. And had three goals with one against. So Quinn Hughes did the gravity-altering thing yep. that Quinn Hughes does when Quinn Hughes is on. And Quinn Hughes, gentlemen and and, and ladies and anyone else listening, um, Quinn Hughes right now this holiday season, he is he is cooking. Yeah. He is cooking. And we we kind of floated the idea earlier in the week. But, I mean, this, this, like, this looks like a Norris nominee. This is what a Norris nominee does, right? Is even when you're shorthanded on the back end, you're playing with a makeshift defense – you consistently find a way to shoulder massive minutes in all, all situations and turn a, turn in a sparkling performance night after night. Now, look, I'm not he's call, the conductor right I'm now. I'm not calling my shot here and saying, oh, he's going to be a Norris nominee or anything, but that's the level of performance that we're seeing. Still has to sustain it for the rest of the season. A lot of other things have, have to happen for him to get into that awards conversation at the national level. But if you just look at what does a Norris guy look like, what, what does that performance and that impact look like? 
It's Quinn Hughes. That's He's doing it. He's doing it right now for this team. He's definitely the conductor, right? Like, he is in the pit, little stick in his hand, waving it about, and everyone plays to the, to the you know, the rhythm that he's setting on both teams. He is dictating everything. Um, it's pretty awesome. It's a lot of fun to watch. And, you know, I'd add, too, I think the down low sustained pressure that Miller – Pearson and Besser are creating shift after shift yeah. is doing the thing that the Canucks haven't had all year. Like in the first part of the season, one of their big issues was that their top players were spending all their time defending. And if you have your top players on their back foot, then everyone gets tired and tired and tired and wears down over the course of the game, right? You need to have those shifts where you reliably have like your defenders saving their energy just sort of manning the point kind of playing like they're the um they're the uh batons in the pinball machine you know what i <laughs> yeah. mean just like keep it in yeah. you know that's Boom. all you put can, it right back right? down for those so guys. you're logging minutes but they're you're, you're logging minutes where your team has the puck and where you're reading and you're not you know starting and stopping a million times in the defensive end and and you get that you get that sustained pressure from your top unit it trickles down and everyone else has more. First of all, your team has more momentum and more energy and more confidence as a group, but also everyone has a little bit more in the tank. And all of a sudden you start to score late in periods and you start to have your best period be the third period, which has been a sort of a trend for the Canucks. Although I said it right before Cogliano finished and that was a tough look on Twitter <laughs> for me. Um, but, you know, I think the overall sort of shape of this is, is that top line, and the way that they're sustaining zone time and threatening down low and, and to their credit, also translating, right, some of that cycle game with Miller and, and last night with Pearson's passing to Besser in front, I mean, that is such a key ingredient that is powering and allowing the Canucks to win these games and, and I think outlast their opponents game after game regardless of outcome. And I thought the key thing for that line was, as you said, even in the second period when the rest of the team wasn't really performing well, they were still having really strong shifts they pretty were, much yeah. every time out there. They that, that was the unit that brought it for all 60 minutes last night. They were just exceptional. Well, did any other Canucks line score a 5-on-5 five five goal? I don't think so. It was three 5-on-5 no. five five goals for them, then the power play goal, and, and, the, empty and the empty netter. Yeah. So they, they were driving the bus at five on five. Although and Dickinson could have had like four goals. Dickinson, we'll, we'll talk about Jason Dickinson. I do want to, there's a lot else I do want to hit from the game. But, you know, as we said, reality might intrude a little bit here. Uh, Elliot Friedman, and we heard this from Frank Frank Cervelli as well, just uh, a few minutes ago on Twitter. Elliot Friedman now reporting. He says, I'm hearing that Calgary, Colorado, and Florida will all have their games postponed through Christmas. To, so until the other side of the Christmas break, obviously, Drancer, there's a lot of, you know, questions from listeners, questions from people on Twitter about whether the entire NHL will shut down until after Christmas. Frank Saravelli, uh, I saw just a few minutes ago saying, as of right now, that is not the plan. But obviously, as we all know, everything changes hour to hour, minute to minute. So as we continue to get in COVID news from around the NHL, as it pertains to your Vancouver Canucks, we will relay it to you as quickly as possible. But the latest news from Elliot Freeman is he says uh, he's hearing that Calgary, Colorado, and Florida will all have their games postponed through Christmas. Uh, back to the game. And man, it's, it's, uh, it's a tricky situation we're in right now, Drancer, because <laughs> tap dancing back I don't know. to the thing. Yeah. That, but the, yeah. the thing that we want to be talking about, ideally we could only talk about it. As you said, reality intrudes from time to time Besser 
that line and Brock Besser in particular, they stole the show last night, right? And it wasn't a one-man show. I mean, Besser gets the finishes, but Tanner Pearson did fantastic work on both goals. An incredible assist from him on the first goal from Besser. Obviously, JT Miller had another extremely strong performance. And we got this text in right off the top of the show, unsigned, simply saying, sign Besser to an 8 by 8 And the interesting thing with the Brock Besser conversation now is so much of the chatter early in the season, you know, pre-Bruce Brujo was, oh my goodness, he's due a $7.5 million qualifying offer after this season. And how thorny is that contract situation going to be for the Canucks? And it's not as if it all of a sudden becomes an easy negotiation with Brock Besser. It doesn't, but... If he continues to look like this, and for me, the big thing is the shot, right? That we're just seeing the shooting talent again from Brock Besser. And if he he continues to look like this for the remainder chunk of the for the remaining chunks of the season, you know, all of a sudden, again, it doesn't become an easy situation with Brock Besser and his contract status, but it becomes a lot more palatable. That number scares you a lot less than it did a few weeks ago with Brock Besser. Yeah, seven five is still a big number. It's not great. <laughs> it's still a really big. It's number. not great. <laughs> and you know, so I mean, I don't know that Besser. Like the the thing is, is well, the thing for me is that I didn't doubt what Besser was during his sort of um, lean streak. So I'm not changing a, a lot about my analysis of him. On the back end, you know, at seven five, you're talking about a top thirty yep. six player. So you're talking about, um, you know, basically your top forty gets paid seven five, right? Um, guys like Heisher and Keller are sort of second contract guys, but but nonetheless, you know, more than more than Kyle Connor, <laughs> more than um, Max Pacioretty, more than you know Matthew Kachuk at, at seven five, right? Uh, more than Gabriel Landeskog who signed as a UFA, right? So that, I mean, is Besser, does Besser, should Besser get a bigger payday than Landeskog, who got then at NMC from Colorado? He's the captain of a cup contending team, yeah, right? Who put puts in 60 points a year plus has, you know, plus physical value. Um, you know, I mean, he's a pretty incredible player, right? I mean, he's a 60 to 70 point physical physically dominant two-way winger um so seven five is still a thorny number to get to for a player that you know i think in besser besser is such a talented shooter i think he's an underrated play driver i think he's a i think he's really good along the wall i think he's really smart like i think his overall hockey intelligence makes him more effective defensively than people who just sort of watch him would notice because of just because of how he alters the environment by always making the right play by always having smart touches even when he's struggling even when he's a little bit behind the play for example or his feet aren't quite where he wants them to be or his finishing game's not quite working he still helps create an environment where the Canucks are more likely to score the next goal than their opponent and so how do you value that I, I mean for me I don't think you can evaluate that can value that at a 7.5 million dollar AAV on a long-term deal if your ambition is ultimately to win a, win a cop. Like, I do think you're going to have to find a way to structure the deal yeah. so that he gets the 7-5 in salary, but that the AAV is closer to 6, closer to 6-5, because that's sort of just where I think he slots in as, you know, like a high-end second-line, low-end first-line caliber forward um, in terms of, you know, and, and sorry, and he's better than that. Like, he's a first-line caliber forward for me, 
but if you're going to win a cup, he needs to be priced at that right. rate, at least in my view. And then the question really becomes, you know, what do you do of term? How much term are you comfortable giving him, right? Because that's one way that you get that AAV down is by giving the player the extra security. Yep. And, you know, it's always – Brock Besser, not – he's still young, still a young player in this league. Always, but always bet on a person of that yeah, quality, exactly. Right? So, like, I'd, I'd always bet on a guy like Besser. Uh, lots of thoughts coming in on the uh, Brock Besser contract situation. This one unsigned says, for real though, seven by seven would be perfect for him. Uh, Jazzy says, as much as it's great that his shot is back, I still have a feeling Besser might get tra- traded because of his speed. Jim Rutherford just loves speed. That is one thing that Jim Rutherford said kind of definitively about yep. his view on this roster is it needs to get faster. I don't think I, – I, people have said that about Elias Patterson too. You know, oh, he's not a burner. That means Jim Rutherford is going to trade him. It's not as simple as, you know, this player doesn't have elite speed and therefore I'm trading him, right? You still you still have to build an overall competitive roster and, and you still have to value guys like Besser appropriately. I've been thinking about this a lot as the Canucks go on a run, right? Because if you're an incoming GM with a three-year deal, Right, an incoming GM and president of hockey operations, and and you know in Jim Rutherford's case, you're talking about a Hall of Fame executive, right? But no one, no one that I can figure out in hockey history has ever won a Stanley Cup in three different markets as a top executive. Like this guy's managing for history here. Yeah, this has never happened. And winning one in Vancouver, like my goodness, I mean, talk about an unparalleled legacy if you do it, right? Well, and, and But if you come in and you've got three years and you've got that type of history on the line, which Rutherford does, right, there's no way seeing a roster with no preconceived notions, no preconceived biases, no skin in the game in terms of any players that are there. There's no way you look at the season and think, I got to push in for this year, right? That, you'd, be, you'd be like, I'm better off mining assets, getting as many futures as I can you know, doing what I can to position this team to take a step next year and contend in my last year, right? Like that would be the objectively what any executive, any sharp executive, certainly any executive as smart as Rutherford would think. But, but as much as I think that and think he must be thinking that, my feelings on that are tempered by the fact that they brought in Bruce Boudreaux. Right. You do not bring in the guy who gets the most out of star level talent like Besser, like Pedersen, some of the guys that were struggling for this team under Travis Green, you do not bring in Bruce Boudreaux if you plan to move on from those young star players. The logic of Bruce Boudreaux, and, and, and by the way, you don't bring in Bruce Boudreaux either if your intent is to punt on a season. The logic of Bruce Boudreaux is that he may give you a bump and that he's going to give you the, the, get, get the most out of his most talented young guys. That's what Boudreaux does. That's Boudreaux's MO to a T. The fact that Boudreaux got brought in tells me that they do, in fact, want to give a lot of runway especially to when their youngest players. Especially when you're getting immediate proof of concept with Brock Besser, right? Not that he's all of a sudden <laughs> shooting like this just because of Bruce Boudreaux, right? No. But as you say, one of the reasons you bring in Boudreaux is because he has this incredible track record of Certainly getting hurt. high-level performances from <laughs> yeah. star players. And it's like, oh, hey, all of a sudden Brock Besser's playing at a high level. I get it that sometimes when a player's value is at their highest, that is when you make want to make a trade, but also... If you're seeing it work, if you're seeing what it can look like here, I agree with you. I'm not sure Jim Rutherford is going to be in such a hurry to uh, to break that up right you, away. You, you don't bring in Boudreaux to resuscitate their value. You bring in yeah. Boudreaux so that you can evaluate this team in a neutral environment, changed entirely from what they were playing under uh, with Travis. And you bring in Boudreaux because you never get a bump. 
you never get a bump with a taskmaster coach. Like, think about Daryl Sutter coming into Calgary last year, right? And that team immediately started to control play better, but the results weren't there immediately yep. by any means. Um, however, when Jeff Ward, who's not as good a coach as Boudreaux, obviously, but also not as good a coach as Sutter, took over from Bill Peters, when you replace the taskmaster with, uh, you know, and, and there's no comparison between Peters and Travis Green. I just right. want to make that clear. But when you replace that coach with the guy players like, right? You sometimes get the bounce. He went 6-0-0 to start his Flames Yeah, one of the other guys. Right. So, you know, Boudreaux's the player's coach. You get the bounce. That was that was a definitely part of the logic. And then also, I think, to to get the most out of, you know, the young stars. To me, that to me that's like a very – any takes that, like, you know, Rutherford didn't fully endorse Pedersen's skill set at the presser, so watch for that. Or, you know, Brock Besser, he's not fast, and, and Rutherford likes speed, like – those takes may be fair to some extent, but probably need to be dialed back. They're a little premature or overstated, as it were, because the very logic of Boudreaux suggests that this team needs and wants and to see what they have in their best young players and probably still believes in them, you know, to a to a very large extent, as they should. They're well, incredibly talented. Jim Rutherford, as you've said, a very, very sharp executive. You know, you don't need me to tell you that. You just look at his resume. He understands that. Not every player is going to be kind of your ideal hockey player grown in a lab with all of the attributes that you love the most, right? Like sometimes you are going to have guys on your team who are really, really good, and maybe you prefer that they were a bit faster, but that's what you have and you work within that framework. It doesn't mean, oh, you know, this guy's slightly slower than my ideal hockey player is. That means I have to jettison him from my team. You, At a certain point, you do have to work with what you have, and Brock Besser has shown he can be a very valuable cornerstone on this team. Unsigned text comes in. Nothing about Besser's career makes me think this is sustainable. Injuries and cold streaks are coming up for him. And I disagree with that. I I understand the point about the injuries because earlier in his career in particular, that was a theme. But if you just look back to last season, and I know a lot of Canucks fans have probably tried to just completely flush last season from their memory because it was so dismal from a team-wide perspective, but Brock Besser was excellent. Right. I, I, I don't think this this idea that, you know, he had this phenomenal rookie year and he's been kind of trending downward since then. I think he had his best season in the NHL just last year. And again, if he continues to play like this, then you're talking about two really, really strong seasons strung together for Brock Besser. So I don't think it's fair to say that, oh, you look back at his career and and that makes you think this is unsustainable. Look, he's not going to keep scoring like this. Of course not. No one is. But we know he can be a very, very valuable player. Uh, just a couple more thoughts on last night's game for the Canucks before we get out and then talk a little bit about the COVID situation. You know, you mentioned Jason Dickinson, the fact that he could have scored a handful of times at even strength, finally gets the empty net goal. And, you know, look, you never know. I, the offensive upside with Jason Dickinson, who knows exactly what that ceiling is. But just the fact that he was generating scoring chances, getting involved offensively, all of a sudden, you look at the makeup for the Canucks, and with the way the Pearson, Miller, and Besser line is playing, Pedersen, Garland, Podkolzin, I didn't think had their strongest game of the season last night, but we've seen how dangerous they can be. If Horvat, Hoaglander, and Dickinson are not only you know holding their own against pretty tough matchups, but if you're getting offensive contributions from Jason Dickinson as well, all of a sudden, that's a very dangerous top nine forward group for this team, right? And, and you're even in a situation where one of those lines can have an off night and the other two have enough talent to kind of pick up the slack a little bit. Yeah. Although I do think they're really le leaning on that Miller line right now. I, I think yep. the, I, I mean, I agree with you. Um, I agree with you in concept, 
But I think the way that that Miller-Besser-Pearson line is going, and I don't just mean in terms of generating offense, I, I mean in terms of that controlling play, um, racking up zone time, like that part I think they needed so desperately, and they've got it right now from a line with Miller, Pearson, and Besser. I, I think that's been an underrated part of, you know, and, and again, not the production, just just the play along the wall, just the consistent down low threat. I think that's had massive knock-on effects on and on down the roster. Well, and as you said, there's real value to playing in the other team's zone, even if you don't generate a scoring chance on 100%. that shift. It, especially when you're rolling out the blue line that they're rolling out right now. And sometimes guys just need to have a shift off, yeah. even when they're on the ice-logging minutes, as huh. you said. So, hey, get it down there in the corners, rag the puck for 40 seconds. That's awesome. Yeah, especially when it's consistent and that, that line's and that line's playing 15 to 18 minutes at 5-on-5 five five every night. Like, that's a, almost a third of the game that you can count on not defending. That is massive. All right. It is the Canucks Hour here, Sportsnet 650. Lots more conversation coming up on the other side. We do have to touch on the COVID situation around the NHL because, as we detailed, it is rapidly evolving. Well, we'll share some of what it might mean for the Canucks, for their games this weekend, for their games beyond that as well. You've got it on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. <laughs> Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver, online at DunbarLumber.com. Again, 650-650 if you want to join in the conversation, as a lot of you did in the first segment, talking about Brock Besser and the game last night. But as much as we do, you know, we would love to keep the focus on what happened last night, what's going to happen in these games against the weekend, and maybe we can look ahead to the Leafs game a little bit at some point here, Drancer, but we do have to talk about what is happening around the NHL with COVID-19 right now? And, of course, the Canucks haven't been immune to that. They've had four players uh, in COVID-19 protocols. We'll see if Tucker Pullman records uh, another negative test today, which would potentially make him available for the game against the Leafs tomorrow. But just to run through some of what we've heard around the NHL today. So, again, Elliot Friedman reporting just about 15 minutes or so ago that the Colorado, Florida, and Calgary have all been will all be shut down until after the Christmas break. Uh, so that follows up. We had heard earlier today that the Minnesota and Florida game and the Tampa-Colorado game uh, were both going to be postponed tomorrow, but now Florida and Colorado have more of their schedule postponed as well. As it pertains to the Canucks and in that Leafs game, the Leafs announced that forwards John Tavares and Alex Kerfoot both placed in COVID-19 protocol today. They canceled practice as a precaution. As a result, did Toronto, and remember, they've been here for a couple of days now practicing and getting some skates in because they had that game against Calgary that they were supposed to play postponed because of the Flames outbreaks. Now, this hasn't been official yet, but... If you've been paying attention to the news, you know that uh, provincial officials here in BC are going to speak this afternoon, give us an update on the COVID-19 situation at 1 o'clock. Our very own Randeep Janda reported earlier today on Twitter. I'll read you exactly what he says 
Uh, I'm told venues in BC with a thousand person capacity or more will be limited to 50% capacity as of Monday, December 20th until the end of January, meaning Canucks games will be at half capacity after this weekend. So that means, and theoretically we'll wait to see because as we all know, situations change very rapidly now, but theoretically that means that these two games against the Leafs against Arizona over the weekend would be at full capacity. And then after that, the Canucks would go to half capacity. And the most immediate game that would affect would be Thursday, December 23rd, when they host Anaheim at Rogers Arena. Good, good scoop by Randeep there. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll wait to hear what Dr. Bonnie Henry and, and Minister Adrian Dix say at 1 p.m. Um, but the team, I can confirm, is preparing for the 50% announcement this afternoon. So we will hear from the team from this in the wake of that. That that part of this is is indisputable and some excellent reporting uh, by Randeep about the sort of last chance 100% capacity yep. glow up this weekend. Go have a time, I guess, is the <laughs> message against the Leafs, man. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. No, me neither. Excuse me. It's... Um... Look, we, we got to have a laugh. Like, I, we got to have a laugh. That's the thing right yeah. now. We're all in that situation where I mean, we're staring down the holiday season. If you're a sports fan, you know, you're not just seeing it with the Canucks. You're not just seeing it around the NHL. You're seeing it in every sport. Yep. Continent wide right now. And man, I was just thankful that we got that game in San Jose in last night. Right. Like, thank goodness for that. And we'll see how many more well, we're able to get well, in here. I want to I want to note. I want to touch on to the Pullman situation. Right. So. Not a huge surprise to me, to be totally honest with you, that the Pullman um, positive may may have been a false positive, especially because he didn't test positive when they did the rapid round that flagged Brad Hunt pregame on Tuesday, right? So the Canucks do two rounds of testing, as I previously reported on Tuesday night, on Tuesday. They first did a rapid testing round, which they had the results of before the game began, and Brad Hunt, it was flag it flagged. Brad Hunt is positive, and Brad Hunt did not join the team for uh, the warm-up skate. Tucker Pullman, however, did. Tucker Pullman spends 15 minutes unmasked on the ice, athletic competition, during a warm-up skate, and then competes in 15 minutes of the game, playing eight shifts in five minutes and 47 seconds. He's then pulled from the game following a positive from an RT-PCR. Uh, since then, he has tested negative, and we'll, we'll, make, we'll see if that's confirmed to the point that he can return. In the event that he can, the club will not call up a defenseman I don't think or may not call up a defenseman necessarily today uh, in the event that he can't return yet um, they probably will so we'll we'll sort of see how the Pullman situation unfolds all day but the reason I want to focus on this so much is that you know one thing about hockey that the other leagues don't necessarily deal with to quite the same extent is the ice sheet itself the ice sheet itself and the transmission dynamics within a team environment or, in particular, within the field of play. The on-ice, unmasked, athletic competition element makes hockey a particularly fertile ground for team-to-team -team transmission and player-to-player -player transmission within a single team during practices and such. So the Canucks on Tuesday, the players step up, go to Bruce Boudreau, scuttle morning skate based on their experience with taking the ice with a positive player, Adam Gaudet in, in this case in March and how that brought down basically the whole team, 21 player and um, players infected by the time all was said and done. They scuttle that practice. And as a result, based on what we now know, avoided stepping on the ice with Brad Hunt as a positive in a similar situation, Right. Then they skate with Tucker Pullman that evening, and it turns out that Tucker Pullman may not, in fact, be positive. 
this to me is a huge bullet dodged and a massive credit to the leadership and the intelligence and the awareness of how to approach this virus from a safety perspective of Canucks players and particularly the the leadership group, the Bo Horvats, the Tyler Myerses yep. who went through this last season. Just incredible. Like honestly, I don't know now that now that this situation is beginning, now that we're beginning to have a real sense of the full shape of it, I don't even know that we've given Horvat and company enough credit for what they dodged here because it's on them. They did it themselves. And and from the looks of it, from the fact that Brad Hunt later tested positive, like they 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 probably they didn't just dodge a bullet, they dodged it Neo style. They dodged <laughs> it. There's no no luck here. Intelligence. Intelligence they took the and, right steps. and viral awareness from the player's side. Kudos to them. And so far it's paid off because we haven't seen that increase Further in spread. positives yeah. from the Canucks. Huge. So that's massive. Look, with as with all of these conversations, yes, it's important from a hockey perspective, but also just massive for those players to avoid going through anything similar to what they went through last year. And, you know, you bring up Bo Horvat and the leadership he's displayed here and the intelligence and the awareness. We spoke to Bo Horvat in the first intermission uh, of the game last night on the broadcast here against San Jose. And I asked him about, you know, just the adversity that the team has been dealing with off the ice because of this COVID situation. And, you know, the answer he gave, it was very much not a, you know, rote, you know, oh yeah, we're just putting our head down and trying to work. It was, it was, yeah, we are dealing with something here and it has been tough and we are, you know, going through a challenging time. There was real concern, I thought, from Bo Horvat. And I think it's impressive, as you say, what he's done as a leader. It was impressive that the team was able to put together that performance last night against San Jose, because again, this is not just your kind of standard, oh, we're dealing with some injuries and it's next man up. I think there is a real, you know, there's real levels of concern and stress here for the players, especially the guys that were in Vancouver last season when it all unfolded. So I do think that's a good point. And I'm curious to see now, I mean, the Leafs are going through something similar, right? Where they had the positives, so they canceled their, their practice today as a, as a precaution. And you know, we are talking about the capacity restrictions uh, potentially coming in after this weekend. But, I mean, we'll have to wait and see what the Leafs do for positive tests tomorrow or, or, or what their testing results are yep. tomorrow, even to know the status of this game. Well, and they'll be in enhanced measures immediately, which means they'll have to have a rapid test completed before they step on the ice. Plus, they'll also do a, a more frequent RT-PCR um, although I think that came in league-wide anyway. Everyone's in enhanced protocols through at least January 7th at the moment. And obviously the NHL has now scuppered three teams' games through um, Christmas, right? 27th? Yep. And and we'll see. there. The, you know, increasing chatter in the industry that there's some possibility uh, that that could become more widespread. Although, you know, as LeBron and Friedman and, and everyone is reporting already, uh, it doesn't seem like that's as of now. Uh, a right. frontline consideration. And they are, everyone who's reporting that is reporting with the major caveat. Like, literally, as of right now, 1140 Pacific time on Friday, that's not happening. But you can't, you can't ignore what's going yeah. on. Ask me again in half an hour. Yeah, and 100%. I, I thought it was interesting. Emily Kaplan of ESPN, you know, earlier in the week, she reported that, or it might have even been late last week, but at, at any rate, she had reported that, you know what, as of right now, there are no discussions, no consideration being given by the NHL to the thought of pausing the season. And then earlier today, earlier this morning, she reported, you know, I checked in with my sources again last night, and now the word was it's a very fluid situation, right? So at the very least, it's trending in a certain direction. Doesn't mean it will get there, but as of a few days ago, what we were hearing was, nope, it's off the table. The NHL is not considering it. 
now we're starting to hear, well, we'll see where this goes. And again, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it's trending in a certain direction right now. Yeah, and we'll see where this goes across the board, right? As we all sort of try and make the right decisions for everybody um, and, and try and navigate this, especially because, you know, this one does feel a little bit different and... It's going to be a very interesting holiday anyway, as uh, as news unfolds, especially around the sports world. Uh, this text comes in, Freddie in uh, New West, who says, uh, The very popular and always sold out games around Christmas, December 23rd and 27th, with many fans from out of town. They need to know if they can uh, if they can attend or not so they can plan ahead. Can you guys try to get a statement from the Canucks? Let us know which tickets are valid. Freddie and New West. And all I can say, Freddie, is as Drancer said, the Canucks will be talking An about announcement this, this at some point. So hopefully people are able to get that clarity, but there's no way around it. I mean, somebody, some, you know, chunk of fans are going to feel put out here. That That's the reality. And we've had people ask, okay, what's the priority? How, they, how do they determine which ticket holders get into the buildings? I know previously in the past, uh, season ticket holders get priority and then you kind of go from there. But yeah, these are logistical concerns that I'm sure... Uh, the Canucks business staff are yeah. hard at work at right have been, now. Have been keeping business staff up at night for the last several days, and certainly they're hard at work trying to sort through the exact logistics. I'd expect forthcoming communication from the team after the government's announcement. You're not going to see them beat the government to it. Um, you know, that's that's just how things work. The government will be allowed to address public health concerns first, and that is the top line item. And then the Canucks will make their own statement and explain their own situation this afternoon. Um, my understanding, well, not my understanding, I can confirm they're working on it yep. and and we'll address those issues in 650. Our colleagues will have it for you, have um, additional crucial details for you as the day unfolds and, and a day that's shaping up to be quite an interesting one in the professional sports world. Yeah, exactly. It's it's bigger than just, you know, uh, look, I understand why we are locked in on okay, what are the what are the logistical ramifications for ticket holders for these games next week, but you just, you know, take a look at what's going on in the NFL, in the NBA. This is a sports-wide, society-wide conversation right now. Uh, another text comes in here uh, it would be nice to know if the players who have it right now are seriously ill or how serious their symptoms are. I can tell you, I can tell I actually do know a little bit about this. I can tell you of the five players impacted between the Canucks and the Leafs going into tomorrow's game. I, and I don't know everybody, to be clear, but I know that three, I can tell you, three of the five are asymptomatic. And uh, my understanding is just mild symptoms for the other two. So this is, again, a huge difference between the COVID outbreak that yeah. we covered last March, where players were quite ill and where symptoms included really nasty stuff, like everything from on the extreme end, brain fog and breathlessness and, you know, on the really extreme end, sudden onset vertigo versus uh, versus what we're dealing with now, where you're not worried about uh, quite the same, quite quite to the same level about players and their families like we were back in March, which was, you know, really an arduous thing to cover. And, and of course, the impacts of that are still being felt on the ice by the Canucks today as Brandon Sutter uh, has not played a game or practiced with the team yet as a result of long COVID symptoms. Yeah, and as you said, absolute full credit to the Canucks players, the Canucks organization for, as of right now, knock on wood, and with all of that said, you know, as of right now, stemming the tide and containing well, and, and, and with a direct player-led intervention that yeah. that now that we have the full facts of the matter look like um, looks like it was sage, like just extraordinary maturity and leadership from this group of Canucks players, and and you know, I, I mean, it's hard not to be impressed with 
you know, forget the clutch goals, forget the Swiss Army knife skill set. Like, it's hard not to be impressed having covered him closely since he was 18 with the way that Bo Horvat does his business. And this, to me, um, you know, is now the top line item, like the most impressive moment that I've seen from a guy who's always impressed me, um, you know, scuttling that practice, going to the coach and asking for that, and then being right, dead yes. right. Just, um, you know, like like Bo Horvat's always been a tough minute center, but now he's like the scientist warning about the thing and, and turns out to be right, you know, in the movie. Like yeah. the guy who no one listens to, except, of course, they did listen to him because he's Bo Horvat and when he talks. The except listens. at least in this version. Uh, in the movie, that they never get listened to back then, that, right? No, They're for sure. Ignored. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah, what I'm saying. So at least but, in this but also, version, but also they in, listen to him. In the movie, there's someone else who's not Bo Horvat. Like the Bo Horvat disaster movie right. is 15 minutes long. People are like, well, if he's saying it. Yeah. <laughs> we got to listen to this guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sam texted, it's nice to hear some positive Bo Horvat talk as opposed to trade talk and alleged riffs. And you could just run down the list of guys who have looked really good under Bruce Boudreaux. And there's so many to talk about, but as you said, like, Look at what Bo Horvat's doing. Look at the goals he's scoring right now. Look at the minutes he's logging. Then you go off the ice. This is, I don't know where he falls in the power rankings of guys who've received the Bruce Boudreaux bump, but this has been a good couple of weeks for Bo Horvat, a really good couple of weeks. Yeah, no question. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think the fact of the matter is, is that the club is just playing a style that makes a lot more sense for these players, and, and it's really baffling that they got away from it because, as I said, I felt like last night's game looked to me most like the 1920 playbook. And 1920 was when they had the most success. You know, I, I there became, after the bubble, this, like, obsession with fixing the defense core. And I think that caused them to change personnel a lot and bring in Schmidt and on and on. You know, obviously there was other things that went wrong last season, including a lack of spending. Uh, and then you get into this season, and, and clearly, again, the club brings in five right-handed defensemen. And it's like the guys who cost less are the guys who are outperforming the other ones. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the blue line remains an issue, but we've seen now too, that really what they needed was just competent NHL guys who could play heavy and not hurt the team as opposed to, you know, sort of stretching to see guys that aren't, you know, second pair guys as second pair guys and paying them accordingly. Uh, we immediately, we started talking about Bo Horvat. We immediately had two texts come in. One unsigned says, it's because Pearson was holding him back. Uh, another one says, the main difference is Pearson isn't attached to Horvat's hip now. Look, Tanner Pearson had a great game last night. Tanner Pearson's gone from the second to the first line, yeah. and the first line's playing better. It's, but he was holding Horvat back. Both, I think both guys are winning the breakup right now. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah they're like me and JPAT. Yeah, um, exactly. the uh, the no the. <laughs> I love this. The Pearson Pearson had that moment right where he he had always been like. The Canucks had won the trade that acquired him, right? So everything he did was gravy. Yes. Right? And then he gets paid and he immediately Completely gets flips. He immediately gets the Brandon Sutter thing, which is, you know, obscure it total total his contributions entirely obscured because of the fact that people don't like his contract. And all along the way, like I don't think Pearson's played his best hockey offensively by any means. I think there's been like games where he's been fighting the puck, but one thing Tanner Pearson has done every night is lived in the dirty areas of the rink and his contributions along the wall. Forget the, forget the slick pass to Brock Besser for the opening goal last Which, night. By the way, where did that come from? Tanner Pearson, where have you been hiding that? <laughs> Unreal, right? Yeah. But, but the work along the wall, the work in the dirty areas has been top notch all season. And it's definitely, as you said, 
living in the dirty areas, it feels like every time you look up at the screen or from your vantage point in the press box, there he is parked in front of the net, right? Whether it's the power play, whether it's five on five, he is in that goalie's face or winning the puck along the boards. Basically, every time you look what at was the, What was the game where he, like, slipped over a couple of scoring chances? It was this week. It was uh, the Sunday game. Yeah, I believe so. Well, that Carolina. Sunday game against Carolina, yeah. right? Where he had, like, a couple chances. He just, like, was clearly fighting the puck all night. And then you look at the sort of underlying numbers, and the Canucks outshot the Canes with him on the ice. And they had a bunch of high-danger chances. And it's like, even though he was fighting the puck, he was still doing the work. And and that's sometimes what you've got to lean on. Like, you've you've got to at least be able to fall back on something. And in Pearson's case, at least he's got that, and he always brings that part of it. And game. he had another really good scoring opportunity last night that he wasn't able to put in the net. That'll come. Like he, he'll get those when you're when you're consistently in front of the net like that, and players like JT Miller, and Brock Besser are doing their thing. Yeah. You're going to get your goals. You, they'll eventually they'll eventually backboard some exactly. in off you. But but also but also when I talk about the Canucks having this efficiency, right? Pearson's not the guy I'm talking about. Like that's not nope. what you can expect from him. You, you expect the work rate. You expect him to complement good players, and he's done that, whether it's Horvat to the consternation and hand-wringing of this market or Miller and Besser to the celebration of fans over the course of the last six games. Really quickly here, just a few more minutes left in the show. Stan Smeal, another piece of news from the Canucks organization last night. Stan Smeal was officially named the vice president of hockey operations. Of course, Jim Rutherford is the president of hockey operations, so Stan Smeal gets the vice president Role. He was on with Halford and Bruff in the morning here. You can listen to the whole interview uh, right now at sportsnet.ca slash 650 or on the uh, Halford and Bruff podcast as well. But I did want to play just one quick clip from Stan Smeal talking about uh, what his responsibilities will be in the new role. Well, basically, you know, um, everything that happens within the hockey ops, uh, as uh, talked to Jim in the last uh you know, a few days, um, uh, there are, uh, things that he wants from me, but overall it's all the hockey op hockey matters, you know, on the player personnel, all the decisions, the internal part of the operations. So involved in, in all areas and in, in working with, within the new staff that we hire and the staff that we, that we have right now. That is Stan Smeal earlier today with Halford and Bruff, just giving a kind of, overview of what his responsibilities will be in the new look Canucks front office. And, you know, the the Stan Smeal season continues, right? I mean, he has had such a, a positive impact, I think, on Canucks fans. And, you know, when the Canucks were, before they hired Jim Rutherford, right, after they had made the moves, but before they had officially hired Jim Rutherford, there was a lot of clamor from fans saying, well, why isn't Smeal being considered for the GM position or the president position? And, you know, my response to that was, I don't know if, it, I think Smeal is more valuable when he has input and he's a major part of the organization, but he's not the top guy making those decisions, right? Because then he can still retain that goodwill in the fan base. He can retain that goodwill and that ability to be kind of the conscience. And, you know, I don't know how much his day-to-day is going to change, going from, you know, senior advisor to vice president of hockey operations. But I think it's the right kind of role where he's going to be involved. He's going to have his, have his say, but he's not the final decision maker on these hockey operations decisions. Yeah, we'll see. Stan Smeal was a really big part of the Gillis era uh, of Canucks operations, uh, specifically uh, overseeing a ton when it came to uh, the recruitment uh, of college players um, and the evaluation of college players. 
during the Jim Benning era in the early years, uh, with with Trevor Linden still around, he was he sort of retained a big voice and then became increasingly marginalized. Uh, he had his best week when the Canucks needed him, and they needed him because Jim Rutherford was sick and the timeline got a little bit murky, and the club sort of was uh, juggling plates. Yeah. And and I think the seams showed a little bit. And and I didn't love the way that he ended up, you know, giving the statement on the firing of. Uh, Jonathan Wall and, and Chris Gear without uh, uh, his position in the organization having been clarified previously, especially as he was said to, you know, have had an input on Boudreaux and an input on the GM search when when clearly that wasn't the case. Um, but look, the VP of, of hockey operations, that's a role that Rutherford's typically had uh, in his front offices. It's a role he's typically held down himself. So uh, it's an interesting title. We'll see how much uh, uh, how much Smeal has leaned on. Hopefully, based on the fact that he's clearly you know the conscience of this club, um, you know, hopefully it's a fair bet. And that's the key thing for me is that he gets to retain that role as the conscience of the club in this position, or at least I anticipate that he will, which is massive. Well, he will whether it's official or not, exactly. because he did whether no matter he has retained that role no matter how big his formal. Uh, portfolio has been over the course of the past 20 years. That is going to do it for us here on the Canucks Hour. Uh, again, look, we'll, we'll, everyone here on 650 will keep you posted on what happens with the latest COVID-19 situation around the Canucks, the NHL, the greater world of sports, what it means for attendance at Rogers Arena, all of that as it develops. You will hear it here, and Drancer and I will be back on Monday, hopefully to talk about a couple of Canucks games over the weekend. You're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.